Hi, everybody. I'm Paul Pepis. I'm the director of the Oregon Humanities Center, and I want to welcome you to this, the first uh, lecture in uh, the OHC's lecture series for this academic year on the topic of the common good. The common good. Um, our speakers on this theme will provide a variety of perspectives on how the common good has shaped and failed to shape our shared histories, how it is working or not working in today's society, and how it might contribute to and strengthen human culture and society in the years to come. Our speaker tonight, artist and activist Deanna Cohen, will present this year's Colin Rowe Thomas O'Fallon Memorial Lecture. Now in its 31st year, the O'Fallon Lectureship is the Oregon Humanities Center's longest standing endowed lectureship. The gift establishing the O'Fallon Endowment was made by Henry and Betsy Mayer in memory of their nephew, the son of beloved UO law professor James O'Fallon, who passed away last year, and his wife, Ellen Thomas. We at the OHC are deeply grateful to the O'Fallon family for their tremendous generosity, and we're delighted to have members of the O'Fallon family here with us tonight. The focus of the O'Fallon lectureship alternates between law and American culture and art and American culture, and uh, tonight's lecture is on art. Tonight's lecture also coincides with and complements the important art exhibition, Plastic Entanglements, Ecology, Aesthetics, Materials, on view at UO's Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art through December 30th, 2018. Originally organized by the Palmer Museum of Art at Penn State University, the exhibit features 58 works by 30 artists from 13 countries, including Deanna Cohen. These artists variously explore the unique materiality of plastic as an artistic medium and symbol of Western modernity and consider the environmental consequences of its widespread use. We are grateful to everyone at the JSMA, especially Jill Hartz, the executive director, and Danielle Knapp and Cheryl Hartop, the JSMA's co-curators for the exhibit, for their help and collaboration during Deanna Cohen's visit. I have just a couple of other quick announcements. Um, you saw our information table when you entered. Um, you can find out about OHC sponsored and co-sponsored events, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Uh, Deanna Cohen has generously agreed to do a Q&A after the lecture. Because we're live streaming the lecture, um, you'll need to come to the microphones. They'll be uh, at the front of the aisles um, when we get to that point and speak directly into the mic to maximize audience opportunities to ask questions, please make sure to keep your questions as concise as possible. I also need to give my customary thanks. First, thanks to our collaborators at EMU Event Services and at the Center for Media and Educational Technologies for their logistical and technical support. Thanks, as always, to the OHC's incomparable staff, our Associate Director, Gina Turner, our Program Coordinator, Melissa Gustafson, our Communications Coordinator, Peg Gerhardt, and our Student Assistant, Greta Blankenship. Last but not least, thanks to our generous donors and patrons for their support. Um, we couldn't do this if it wasn't for them, and if you want to join their ranks uh, to support cutting-edge research in the humanities and find public programs like this one, just pick up a donation envelope uh, from the info table on your way out. Okay, I'm now delighted to introduce this year's O'Fallon Lecturer on Art and American Culture, the artist and activist Deanna Cohen. A celebrated and innovative artist, Cohen has used plastic bags as the basis for her art for almost 30 years. 
She is also the co-founder and CEO of the Plastic Pollution Coalition, a global alliance of hundreds of individuals, organizations, and businesses working to stop plastic pollution and to raise awareness about the toxic impact of single-use and disposable plastics. Given her unique position as an artist and environmental activist, Deanna Cohen is ide ideally suited to speak on art and American culture and our theme of the common good. Her talk tonight is entitled Plastic Pollution Art to Action. Please join me in welcoming Deanna Cohen. Hi. Thank you. <laughs> Can you guys hear me? Cool. So, good evening. Just like to say thank you, actually, to um, the Humanities Center here at the University and also to the O'Fallon Speaker Series for inviting me to come speak to you guys. And uh, it's also really an honor to be part of the Plastic Entanglement exhibition. I'm kind of curious how many people here have seen the exhibition. Wow. Pretty good. What do you think? Some thumbs up, yeah. It's a really cool show. I'm, I'm proud to be part of it, and uh, I'm a very big fan of a lot of the work that's in the show. So, I've been making art my whole life, and I'm not sure that I ever thought that I would help co-found a global nonprofit. In fact, I was a little bit allergic to the nonprofit concept as a kid growing up because my mom ran the Los Angeles Free Clinic. I grew up in Los Angeles and I saw how hard she worked. And, uh, and after the last nine years of this experience, because we co-founded Plastic Pollution Coalition in 2009, I would be the first person to tell you that uh, no sane person starts yet another nonprofit. But I think that when you feel strongly about something, which I do about this issue, uh, your passion and your drive to talk to other people and communicate the issue supersedes sometimes your internal you know, knowledge of what would be in your best interest to do. So with that said, I'm gonna talk to you about um, the ocean <laughs> and art. <clears throat> and this is an image from Greece, from an island called Kefalonia. Um, it's the birth island of my maternal grandfather. And it's in the Ionian Sea. Excuse me. <clears throat> and it's a really spectacular place that kind of called to me, and I, I finally went there about eight years ago. And... Uh, and I'll come back to that. For the last 30 years, approximately 30 years, I've been making artwork out of plastic bags that I cut up and sew back together. Um, originally, I started just dissecting, kind of de deconstructing the bags along the seams, uh, and then putting them back together in kind of a linear fashion. But slowly over time, I began to see abstract images that I could use in the work and uh, think of things as kind of landscapes or hills or valleys or windows. And um, 
I also began to play with text and imagery that I was finding on the plastic bags. This is a piece that's called Recycle Man. And it's actually a bag that a friend brought me from Germany. And I think that there's, I find a deep irony in a lot of the imagery that I find printed on plastic bags because, well, I think that recycling is a really, it's an interesting idea, like conceptually. I find that many places in the world, in fact, many places in the United States have no infrastructure to support it. So while materials may be recyclable, it doesn't mean that they are. Um, I also, in my work, started using a needle and thread and kind of getting more involved in using the thread as a drawing element in some of the pieces and also began to make pieces less linear and less like paintings that filled up the whole canvas or the whole space. And this is the piece that I have, actually, it's, it's shaped slightly differently here, but this is the piece that's up in the show in Plastic Entanglements. It's called Post-Consumer Mandala. When I originally made it, I made it to hang vertically from those handles that you see on the far side. And when it is actually hung that way, there is a kind of mandala shape, which you see in the upper top of the piece. When I was making this piece, I had just been to, to Mountain View in Northern California to hear the Dalai Lama present. And I was really thinking about the fact that we live in this, you know, culture of consumption where things are being, we're being bombarded all the time by marketing and being sold things and we're being sold things that come in bright, beautiful colors um, with imagery on them and again, plants and animals and different kinds of beautiful things and text. And so I really began to think about that with my work. And it was also around the time that I made this piece, uh, which is called Post-Consumer Mandala, and this next piece, which is called Falda. Sorry, am I making the noise with this? Sorry about that. This piece, Falda, uh, which means skirt in Spanish. It was reminding me of a kind of skirt that's used in flamenco dances. Um, this is really when the work I was making, there were two things happening. One was some of the work I had originally made, some of the bags in some of my pieces started to fissure and break apart. And initially I got really excited. That was after working with the material for about eight or nine years. I got really excited and I thought that it meant that the plastic was organic and ephemeral and like us, like a flower, like a like a puppy dog, like a cat, you know, like a human being, that it was actually breaking down. And so I started to look into that and realized it was actually just breaking apart into smaller bits. And this was also around the time that my work, again, came out of these kind of quadrants, and I started to realize that I was literally only limited by my own imagination, and I could make pieces that were any shape and any form that I chose to. I could also make pieces more multidimensional or sculptural. and. Um, organic and again, more like things that I was finding in nature. This piece is called Green. And in this piece I used a lot of bags that have imagery of grass or daisies or flowers. Um, I think I might have also used a, a bag from some frozen peas or something that had you know images of plants or a crop growing on them. 
And then I started making even larger pieces. This is a piece called Funnel. It's about 15 feet high and 10 feet in diameter, and you can walk inside of it. And again, I was really thinking of this kind of whirlwind, almost like a tornado that we get caught up in. And so again, I'm a little bit slow at getting messages from my own artwork. This is prior to having created Plastic Pollution Coalition. When I was making these pieces in 2001, 2003, 2004, I was still accepting plastic bags if I went out or was shopping or buying something. And I hadn't made that connection yet that I should stop using plastic bags. <laughs> it took me a while, I'm a little slow. <clears throat> This is a piece called Bridge that's about 25 feet long uh, by 11 feet high, and I made it in three different panels. And actually, I made it while I was traveling, and so I also found that by taking things out of the frames, I could work on really large-scale pieces, collect and utilize materials while I was on the go, on the move, traveling, um, sew them, fold them back up, and fit them in my handbag. And uh, so, actually, I was probably working on this piece. No, this was, yeah, I was working on it just prior to 9-11, so 2001. And I flew back, I think, from Europe the day on September 10th. And I had a scissor in my handbag that I had been using while I was sewing. A pretty substantial scissor, actually. And I was coming through the airport in France, and they said, oh, we're so sorry, you can't bring these scissors on the plane. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry about that. And they said, here, we'll put it in this envelope for you, and it will come out on the baggage claim when you get to Los Angeles. <laughs> I don't think they do that anymore. <laughs> anyway, I was going to say the piece that's further down the wall, and I don't know if you can see it very well from over here, is a piece that's called Happy Fabulous. And those were words that were printed on the bags. And slightly behind those words uh, are actually other words that were printed on the same two bags that said, retail therapy. So like I said, I, I'm, a, I'm a big lover of the ocean. I grew up in Los Angeles on the Pacific Ocean, or I actually hadn't said that yet. But the ocean really holds a place in my heart. And um, I love uh, body surfing. I became a certified diver when I was about 26 years old. Um, and I started surfing when I was about 30, longboarding. I'm, I'm an eternally aspiring longboarder. I just want to get that straight. Not, not my achievements in surfing are not that wonderful, but at least I've caught some waves. Um, but the more that I was going to the beach in California and also in the Mediterranean, other parts of the world, the more plastic I was seeing. And uh, I, I don't know if you guys ever see plastic if you walk on the beach in Oregon, but I, I just feel like in my lifetime it's gotten worse and worse. So this is the mouth of the Bayona Creek. It's where the LA River empties out into the Pacific Ocean in, in California. and. Um, I, at some point, I had met the vice president of the city of Long Beach. Her name's Suja Lowenthal. And she said that they spend $2 million a year trying to catch all the plastic that comes down the LA River to keep it from going out into the ocean. And she had made it really clear. I saw her give a presentation that 
that the city of Long Beach would much prefer to spend that money on infrastructure and, you know, their fire trucks and fire stations and schools and roads and other things. But uh, this was something that they found that they had to do. And this image is from, I think it's from 2000, 2009. This is an image that was sent to me by some of our coalition members in a place called Bahia in Brazil. And I've seen a lot of other images of this exact same beach, and from the distance, it just looks spectacular. It looks like a postcard, like you're going on your dream vacation with palm trees and blue water and white sand. But as you walk along the beach, this is actually what you encounter. This is Camillo Beach. It's the windward side of the big island in Hawaii. And the sand has pretty much become a kind of plastic beach now. Uh, with the plastics breaking apart or being chewed by animals in the ocean, uh, washing up. So, I'm only going to take us to a depressing place for a little while. This is an image from Midway Atoll in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. This is an adolescent lace and albatross. These are some images that my friend Chris Jordan took. He's actually one of the artists who's in Plastic Entanglements in the exhibition. And this is, you know, an island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, kind of at the top of the archipelagos that come up from Hawaii. Uh, there's an, only a military base there and a research center at somewhat equidistant from, you know, where we are right now and Asia, Japan, the coastline. And all of the stuff washes up on the beach, but also the adult albatross go there to lay their babies to lay their eggs and hatch them, and then they fly out for about a thousand square miles around this island area and gather food and bring it back and feed it to their young. And then unfortunately, many of their young die with their stomachs full of plastic. Chris Jordan's images are very important to me, or so are Susan Middleton's images, in particular because I feel like when I look at them, I can recognize things that you know, we use every day. And um, I see Coca-Cola bottle caps and toothpaste caps. I've seen a lot of images like this with toothbrushes, with barrettes, with little toys, Bic lighters. Um, it's interesting because companies that brand their products so well and the packaging that they use are even more distinct. So it's quite easy to recognize um, caps and bits and pieces when they've got a logo of a company on them. This is a photo that uh, a friend sent me from Croatia. He was on vacation with his family and um, I was in Dubrovnik in 1990 and didn't see anything like this, so this is relatively new to see plastic washing up in this way. I spoke at a TEDx in Thessaloniki in Greece in 2013 or 2014, and I walked across from the theater, the amphitheater where I was speaking, just to look at the renovation they'd done of this whole beautiful strip where people could walk a promenade with drought tolerant, you know, garden design and everything. It was so beautiful. And I looked down into the water and this was what greeted me. I'm just curious 
are people here, how, how familiar are you all with this Great Pacific Garbage Patch? Can I see a show of hands? So I won't go long into it if you guys are, but um, you know, we have these naturally occurring gyre systems in our oceans. I think there are actually 11 naturally occurring gyres and there are five major gyres in the five major oceans. There are actually two gyres in the Pacific. There's one up here in the northeastern Pacific Ocean and then there's a lower one as well. Um, and so those are naturally occurring wind, uh, ocean currents that just seem to collect a lot of stuff. And I think when I was a kid, they were probably collecting a lot of driftwood and, um, I don't know, coconut, seaweed, whatever would be washing around in the ocean. And now they kind of appear to be pretty plastic laden. And I originally had this idea that you could go out and clean them up clean up the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, and I'm just not so sure about that anymore. I think we'd probably do better focusing our energy on, uh, on source reduction from land. It would certainly be cheaper. So I've worked on some pieces with children in different parts of the world. The, the piece behind us here, this was in Greece, was a piece that I'd made with kindergarten through fifth graders in Spain in 2010, and it's called Ocean of Plastic. Um, and we were able to bring it to Greece and work with these kids who all made wonderful posters that had different messages on them. Uh, my Greek is very limited to Kalispera and, you know, good evening and thank you, but um, these kids all had messages that they were talking about in the work that they were making. And it was so interesting, or it's been so interesting to work in particular with children because kids are so used to being learning new things every day that if you explain to a kid that, that a sea turtle might mistake in a plastic bag for a jellyfish, which is food that they eat, then a kid can get pretty quickly that it might not be that good for us to be using plastic bags every day. So it's, it's been fun, to, really fun to work with kids and fun to see how fast they just readjust their thinking to a world that doesn't include a whole bunch of plastic bags in it. This was an eye that I made with some kids in, um, on Grand Eleuthera out of washed up plastic pollution that they'd all collected in a beach cleanup a couple days before on the beach. This is part of a trawl sample. These are lantern fish. They're part of the basis of the marine chain, and you can see how many little pieces of plastic are in that trawl sample with them. So when we talk about needing to clean up the ocean or deal with the plastic in the ocean, a lot of it is this size. And I don't really think it's possible for us to sift the entire ocean. I think I'm gonna fly through the animals pretty quickly because I know there are some people here who are animal sensitive. Uh, but this is a fish that my friend Marcus Erickson caught when he was drift sailing from Long Beach, California to Hawaii. And they cut it open on the boat to eat it, and it had, I think, 13 pieces of plastic in its stomach. No, sorry, 17 pieces of plastic. So plastic also, as the title of the exhibition at the museum says, plastic entangles animals, uh, in particular in the ocean, but also on land. And things that we think of like, well, fishing gear, but maybe even a six-pack ring, something that we might not really be making that connection, but can so greatly impact 
um, animals and wildlife and sea life. We've also been working with veterinarians who are based in the United Arab Emirates who've been sharing reports with us of finding that camels and donkeys and cows and oryxes, this is an image from India, uh, but that they are ingesting and eating plastic and there's actually a piece in the exhibition of the rumen from a camel that was completely impacted with plastic. It's one of Chris Jordan's pieces. Uh, two years ago I was in Indonesia and this was a tourist place on the side of the road. We pulled over to look at these, you know, non-human primates that were hanging out with their babies. And I guess tourists bring them little nuts or some kind of snack to feed to them, but they were also sitting there chewing on plastic, which was pretty disturbing for me. Okay, I'm flying through the animals. That's a camel from the UAE. So, one of the problems, and this is already an old diagram, is that plastic production right now, and actually this is slanted and it should actually just be going straight up from that X. Now, plastic production in the United States is slated right now to increase 400%. And we are building new ethylene crackers and all kinds of factories to produce uh, natural gas and ethylene and different materials with the specific intention that they will be used to make single-use plastic water bottles. I personally think that's insane. Um, these are our other problems. These are nurdles. That's how small microplastics can be and microbeads on a penny. These are microfibers. You guys might have been hearing more about microfibers lately. Washing out of our clothes, all of the synthetics that we wash. There was a, a study that came out from Orb Media earlier this year about uh, testing tap water from around the world, including tap water from the White House, and all of it had microfibers in it, microplastic fibers. And then a later study that they released looking at the top 25 bottled waters in the, that are sold in the world, and all of those as well had microplastics, microfibers in them. So in learning about the issue of plastic pollution and how it was impacting animals, both on land and in the ocean, I, I realized at some point that I wasn't just concerned about the gyre of plastic that was out in the Pacific Ocean or in the Indian Ocean or in the Atlantic Ocean, but I was actually concerned about plastic and the gyre of plastic that is, we experience in our supermarkets, in our health food stores, when we try to buy food for our family. And I really started thinking about how somehow, I guess I wasn't paying attention, probably a lot of us weren't, just everything slowly started to shift. And I think it really happened in the 70s or late 70s, early 80s, we started to shift even all of our soda pops and stuff like that, everything used to come in glass when you go to the market. And I remember that really well. And it slowly all shifted to plastic and nobody noticed or we noticed and didn't really think about it. Um, and one of the biggest problems with packaging all of our food and beverages in plastic is that they're made with chemicals, plasticizing chemicals. So I don't wanna go too deep into this, but you can make plastic, I mean, it's 98% of plastic is made out of petroleum, so made out of oil. 
but you can also make plastic out of other fibrous carbon sources. So you can make it out of corn, you can make, make it out of corn husk, out of bulrush, out of potatoes, you can make it out of hemp, you can make it out of uh, all different kinds of materials, bamboo. And the problem really, from my understanding of it, is that the chemicals that we add, which are the plasticizing chemicals that give these carbon sources the qualities that we associate with plastic, like make it supple, malleable, transparent, translucent, opaque, um, spongy or mushy, kind of like rubber. Those chemicals are two main groups of chemicals. Bisphenols, so you might have heard like, oh, this is BPA-free, so bisphenols like BPA. If it's BPA-free, it might be made with BPB or BPC or BPS or BPZ, and then phthalates. And when something's heavily phthalated, it makes it feel like rubber, like a rubber ducky that you buy that's not actually made out of rubber or a toy for a child is usually very heavily phthalated. So that's the thing that really got me was this concern with the chemicals from plastic that are potentially... Really? Sorry. How's that? Okay, that, I won't move. Um, that's the thing that really got me about this issue. I think it was like the thing that locked me into it. And I'm gonna go personal for a minute, which is when I was in high school, junior high school, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer and she was 38. She died when I was 40, when she was 43 and I was 17. So she died when she was 43 of breast cancer that was estrogen receptive. Now you ask a teenage kid what that means. I had no idea what that meant. But we now know that most cancers are estrogen receptive and breast cancer in particular is. And the chemicals that are used to make plastics have been linked to breast cancer, prostate cancer and brain cancer. Um, they've also been linked to some other things that we're basically having epidemics of in this country and in other parts of the world, including diabetes and obesity. And these chemicals have been linked to lower sexual functions, sterility, and infertility. So if I wasn't passionate enough about it already, that really like brought me full circle in my life to, uh, interestingly, through my artwork, back to a subject that I've been interested in educating myself more and more about and trying to help other people become educated and understand it. So, that brings me back to art. Um, a friend of mine bought all of the stock of an old printing press shop in Nebraska and he said it cost him more to ship it out to Los Angeles than he paid for all of it and the big old presses. But he let me come over to his workshop and this was, this was the sign I made. <laughs> um, and so again, in 2009, after I'd gotten over my idea that I wanted to go out and clean up the Great Pacific Garbage Patch and with a crane and chip up all the bits and cold mold it into bricks that I was gonna build houses with or whatever my idea was back in 2008, 2009, I co-founded Plastic Pollution Coalition, and I did so, there were four of us initially. And we decided we wanted to create a group that would allow us to 
in a sense, umbrella or bring together an alliance of all different kinds of groups that were working on different aspects of the plastic pollution issue. So we work with the Teamsters and the Girl Scouts of America. We work with Conservation International, an environmental working group. Uh, we work with the Breast Cancer Fund and with Keep a Breast Foundation, LessCancer.org, and a group called Non-Toxic Revolution. But we also work with smaller groups that are focused on turtle habitat restoration in Costa Rica and in Greece. Uh, we work with groups that represent waste pickers in India. <laughs> it's very diverse. We work with uh, Gaia, the Global Alliance for Incineration Alternatives. So really beginning to slowly, in our first year, 2010, we were really about 25 groups and then continuing to grow incrementally. Each year we're now over 750 groups and we asked two things of everyone who joined the coalition in the beginning. We asked that when you're talking about plastic, to please call it what it is, to call it plastic or plastic pollution. And we also took this model of the three R's, reduce, reuse, recycle, and we encouraged people to add a fourth R onto the front, which is whenever possible, to refuse. So look around. If you're a student here on campus, you could do, I don't know, something like what I do when I'm traveling, which is I carry reusable bamboo utensils. And I like straws in my iced tea. This is iced tea. So I carry a food grade stainless steel straw. I actually brought a bunch of these with me. I might not have enough for everybody, but you're welcome to take one if you want to at the end. Um, and so there's little things like that that I do. I, I carry an insulated cup. I know I'm in Oregon. It's Hydroflask from Bend. Bravo. Um, little things like that. And I look at every day, in a sense, as a fun kind of challenge to try and figure out how I'm going to make it through that day and using as little plastic as possible. <laughs> at least single-use and disposable plastic. So I'm back to artwork now. Is that my hair again? Wow, sorry. This mic's not made for curly hair. So this is a piece that I made which is called Wave Lens. And I made it originally to be the flag that I wanted to fly on the boat that I was going to take out to the middle of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch when my intention was to clean it up. This is one of Chris Jordan's pieces. This is probably the first piece of his that I saw that really drummed it home for me and, again, made me realize that, you know, all of these animals that are suffering from having ingested plastic or being fed it by their, lovingly by their parents, um, are really a metaphor. They're a metaphor for us. They're a metaphor for what we're doing to ourselves. We're stuffing ourselves full of plastic and the chemicals that leak out of plastic leach out of plastic and we are not even aware that we're doing it. So I wanna come back full circle to the idea of art to action. And I don't think I realized it. When I, when I was in college, I started out as a biology major and I became frustrated in feeling that I was gonna to need to have a PhD in order to be creative. And I don't wanna be insulting to anybody who's in the process of working on their PhD right now because that's awesome. Um, or anyone who has their PhD who's in the room already. But it was a hard thing for me to realize after my freshman year. And 
I had this feeling that I just wanted to be creative immediately, and I feel like in choosing to pursue art uh, as my, my medium, my primary way that I was gonna be communicating with the world, it actually allowed me to begin to understand and um, utilize an incredibly valuable tool. Uh, this is a piece by a Catalan artist named Alvaro Soler Arpa. It's from an exhibition he did called um, Vida Toxica. And he, his background is in illustration, but he takes animal bones and rewires them and designs these kind of imaginary contemporary dinosaurs and then stuffs their chest cavity and their abdomen full of plastic and plastic pollution. I find them really, really strong and really poetic. This is an artist named Lila Rue Duncombe who does performance pieces. She also uses plastic. She's also a muralist. Um, and I really like the pieces she's done. She's, she has a lot of performance pieces that you can see online, working to communicate things. She's made big expanses like wings out of plastic. She uses plastic in a very different way than I do in, when I use it as a medium. But I so appreciate uh, all of the places that she explores in her work. This is an artist named Virginia Flack. She does pieces and she actually calls most of them are mandalas and they're also all made out of plastic bags and found plastic bags. But that's a detail from another piece of Virginia's. You can probably recognize the Target bag. So Pam Longobardi, who's one of the artists in the Plastic Entanglement exhibition, she made that long piece on the wall that's called Economy of Scale, Economies of Scale. This is um, a piece that we put together at the Goulandry Museum of Natural History in Athens in Greece. And they allowed us to go into their, their displays. This was a triceratops skeleton. And cover the base with polystyrene styrofoam that we had collected in beach cleanups that we'd done. For me, again, this idea of combining imagery of dinosaurs with plastic, this material that's been made from, you know, sunlight turned into plants and dinosaurs and animals that went extinct a long time ago and became compressed and turned into oil and now we've turned it into plastic. I think there's something, again, fascinating for me in it, um, but to bring it full circle. This is another piece of Pam's that she made after the BP oil disaster in the Gulf. And these were all uh, bits of black plastic that she found that either had a relationship to oil or car uh, materials, as well as um, fishing squid traps and different things like that. So. This is from a newer series that I was working on where again I was trying to go even, I don't know, at some point I decided my work was too pretty and I wanted to make it uglier. Um, I don't actually think this piece is very ugly, but, but this is a direction that I've been exploring. I've also been exploring um, wrapping plants, and this, these were grapevines that I had cut back one year, and 
bending them into different shapes. I did a whole series and these were li called life savers or life preservers. And another series where I made kind of infinity symbols out of them and again wrapped them. And this reminds me as well of a lot of things that I see when I'm just out in nature, when you see plastic that's become tangled in a tree or a bush. Um, this is an artist who is based now in Bali. I'm not actually sure where she's originally from. I think she might be uh, European. Um, and this is a piece she's been working on that was originally called 10,000 Souls, S-O-L-E-S. And these are all flip-flops. Um, Sorry, the resolution looks like it's a little bit low on that. Sorry about that. But um, I like her work because I feel like it really draws you in and she's playing with color and she's playing with these forms, but she's also really thinking about our human footprint and how we reduce our single-use or disposable plastic footprint on the planet. This is a picture from Greece. That was my team. That's Pam Longabardi on the far right, who is, again, one of the other artists that I collaborate with a lot, who's in the Plastic Entanglement exhibition. She's based in Atlanta. We stuck our friend Serena in front because she's really cute. <laughs> this is a bay in Kefalonia that's called Assos. It's a village called Assos. And if you look right, right over there, no, sorry, right over at the end, at some point, I was having a coffee and sitting in that cafe, and I looked across the water, and I saw the mouth of a cave. This is what the cave, this is an image of the mouth of the cave from inside the cave. And I had my snorkel and my mask and my fins with me, so, of course, after I had an espresso, I was like, I'm going to swim over there. So I swam across the bay and into the cave, and what I found was something that we then began to clean up. So we began to clean up this cave and we named it the Witch's Cave because we found a piece of chartreuse plastic that had an image of a witch's face in relief, kind of embossed on the front of it. Um, and we've cleaned this cave up for several years in a row and found thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of uh, polystyrene and plastic that just wash up into the cave whenever the tide comes in. But I'll go back for one second just so you can look at that bay again. It looks pretty beautiful, doesn't it? You'd never know. So this is part of a dive team that I went out with uh, in Mallorca in Spain uh, to go look at a marine protected area. Uh, half of our group went diving, so they went down to about 25, 30 feet under the water, and I chose to stay on top and was snorkeling around, and they all came up and said, wow, how magnificent, what wonderful flora and fauna. It looks like the reef is, the, the system here is regenerating. This is so wonderful. We didn't see any plastic. And as they came up, I said, look at the swath of plastic garbage that is floating all around us on top of the water. This is another piece by Alvaro Soler Arpa. I love this, it reminds me of, uh, is it Hamlet? Plastic, I knew him well, Horatio. 
Uh, this is a piece from an artist series we started called the Refuse series. This is a, actually probably the most famous artist who's contributed to the series. His name is Raymond Pettibone. And he's in a lot of museum collections. Um, and he made this piece really to help support the work that we were doing. But it's something that we launched right in the beginning was how can we use art again to help communicate that there's a problem, that there's an issue, and also help support the work of, that we're doing as a, as a nonprofit. So now I wanna talk about solutions. I'm kind of in love with glass. I don't know how many people here like glass, but I've really gotten into going to Goodwill, secondhand stores, council thrift stores, and finding old Pyrex containers, that were all measured, they were like half pints, pints, quarts, and stuff like that, very, very cool. Glass bottles, I love them. Reusable bags, reusable Chico bags that fold up into tiny little things you can keep in the corner of your purse or your backpack, or with a carabiner clicked onto your briefcase or your backpack. I also kind of love steel bottles. I think I prefer glass over steel, but I find I do better with steel, especially if I'm moving around a lot and I drop things. I noticed just in the last couple years on the island that we go to, and they may be catering more to tourists there, but more and more reusable bags and canvas bags being sold, and markets really offering that now to customers so that they can use reusables. Although this is a photograph that I took recently at the farmer's market in Hollywood. <laughs> so it's, we're definitely not in a perfect world yet, and I think you know, we have a ways to go. One of the projects we've been involved in and we helped create was a pilot project at Bonnaroo Music Festival, which is about an hour and 15 minutes outside of Nashville in Tennessee. It's in a place called Manchester. It's a four-day music festival where everybody's pretty much camping. And they launched a pilot project with us, I think back in, I guess it was launched in 2014, 2000, yeah, 2014 to do a reusable steel cup, they made available at point of sale for beer. And if you bought it with your first beer, then every beer for the four days of the music festival was a dollar off. And it was so wildly, wildly successful. I mean, this is a music festival with 60 to 80,000 people at it. And the first year they made 7,500 cups. So they sold out the cups in a day and a half and people started stealing them from each other and I was like, yes. So the following year, we did a different color. So we've done five different cup colors, and they're very popular, and people bring back the original cup colors from the first few years, because now it's like a badge of honor that you've got it. And then they sell them, or they make them available with this kind of carabiner around the, I mean, a neoprene strap with a carabiner around the top so that when you don't have liquid in it, you can click it onto your jeans or your shorts or your purse or your backpack or your fanny pack and just always have it with you. And the last time I was there, which was earlier this year in June, I met a family, because people bring their kids to this music festival. So I met some parents who were there with their two little sons, and they had a cup color from every year. And they said, we buy a new one every year, but we love them and we bring them back. And people use them all year round. Plastic straws. Like I said, I kind of love straws, so I carry stainless steel straw with me, um, but there are all these cool companies doing different things now. There's a, a company, there are two companies that are growing 
straw from wheat, like rye wheat. One's called harvest straws, and they're, they're pretty much single use, but they're really great, and I think it's actually probably where the concept of a straw came from originally. Um, there are a bunch of companies like Dharma Straw and Simply Straws that are making glass straws and glass Pyrex straws. There are people making bamboo straws. Um, I just discovered a company that makes a straw that's edible. It kind of tastes like um, sweet tarts. <laughs> I only had the lemon flavored one, but it was really good. There's a, a company called Lollyware Lolly Straw that is making straws out of um, seaweed and you can eat them and they will break down completely. This is my super pal, Jackie Nunez. She's the founder of The Last Plastic Straw. Um, they were part of our coalition for some time and it was really a one, one woman show. And she was riding around on her bike in uh, Santa Cruz and Monterey, delivering paper straws to people. She had worked as a, a bartender, so she, she knew people at some of the local cafes and bars and really started this wonderful, uh, kind, I'm gonna call it kind of a small town engagement with her local places, her local cheers, the places that she frequents, to begin a conversation with them and engage them. And her main thing was just trying to encourage them to only serve straws upon request, just as a first move, not to ban straws, just to only serve them upon request. And then if you're gonna carry them, her next step with them would be to encourage them to switch to paper or steel or something that was potentially reusable. These are, some of, these are some of the students that we worked with in Greece. They were from um, the University of the Peloponnese from the uh, anthropology department there. And they were actually doing a baseline study of the entire island of Kefalonia. And we collaborated one day together. We did a cleanup of all the plastic in a particular little gorge, little area. And then they did a kind of baseline study out into the water, about 20 meters out into the water. And it was a really fun day of action together. So I do have actually one other thing that I'd like to show you guys, but I wanted to put this up. Hopefully I didn't, do I have a typo in there? I do, okay. Please, if you copy this, put an extra L, I mean an extra I between the L and the T in coalition. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, it's easy for me to do sometimes, sorry about that. So we're actually plasticpollutioncoalition.org. And, I would, and we're plastic pollutes on Twitter and on uh, Instagram. I would say if you'd like to learn more, our website has tons of resources on it. We have a healthy baby guide that we created with Made Safe about a little over a year ago that you can download for free. We also have a campus plastic reduction guide that we created with Post Landfill Action Network and the students from the University of New Hampshire and we have a Better Alternatives Now 2.0 list that we created with eight other groups from our coalition, which is looking at what does it really mean and how do we really gauge um, plastics that, and bioplastics that claim to be compostable or biodegradable and what that kind of measurement system is. Um, so with that said, I have a one minute video that I wanted to share with you guys that some filmmakers that I know um, sent us and we just posted it live yesterday. I'm gonna see if I can figure out how to do that.
we should, should we dim the lights a little bit so you can see it better, or can you see the screen well? Okay, thank you. Are we connected to the internet? <laughs> no. In all fairness, it did play before. There you go. So that was made by uh, some young filmmakers who are working on a, a longer format piece. Um, and we will escape from that now. Do you wanna just maybe have this one up on the screen? Your holder, yeah. Oh. Or we can just, okay, great. All right, thank you. So that's kind of my story, you guys. <laughs> Sorry, I'll, I'll actually say that again. That is my story. But I appreciate you all being willing to come hear it and learn about it. So I'm happy to answer any questions. Hello. Hello. My name's Taylor. And my question is, do you think that consumerism is solely taught, or rather, do you think that there is an innate human nature to want the finer things in life? Therefore, are we caught in a cyclical cycle of consumerism? Do I think we're caught in a cyclical cycle of consumerism? Probably. But how do we break it? How do we break it? Yes. Well. 
Are you asking me what I think the solution is? Yes. Yeah. So I think the solution is multi, multifaceted. Okay. Um, when I was in college, I, I remember I started buying bottled water. Mm -hmm. Vending machines suddenly were on campus in the 80s. And I thought I was just the bee's knees, like super cool with my Evian bottle. Yeah. And of I course. realize now in retrospect that I was just a total chump. So I was, going off that I, point, what makes it, what makes you cool to be holding something and what makes you cool to have the finer things? Well, I don't think anything about me having that bottle made me cool. I mean, what but what I'm made saying, you think you were cool? Why did I think I was cool? Because there was a mountain peak on the side of it from, you know, mm -hmm. of a mountain called Evian. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, you know, in retrospect, I think it was actually that whole big crunch of marketing and advertising from bottled water companies created a dangerous moment. It was a moment when I stopped paying attention to my public water and my municipal water. And... I look back now in time and I think that was a dangerous moment. I think that all of the companies that have marketed bottled water, in a sense, are partially responsible for what's happened in Flint, Michigan and, you know, between the Imperial Highway and I Southern agree. Los Angeles. Yeah. So, you know, I don't think that there's a simple solution, but I do think that we need a massive system shift. And I do think that young people have the power to create those kinds of shifts on school campuses. I agree, go vote. Yeah, so I encourage, yeah, I encourage that. I really encourage everybody to uh, feel free to take that on, uh, especially if you're paying tuition to go to a good school and paying a lot. I think that you have a right to ask to not be um, poisoned by the packaging that's used for your food and beverages on campus. Um, it's a little more complex than that, you know, and it's going to take working on it from a lot of different angles, but I think it's possible and doable, and actually, in fact, we have to do it. And when I say we, I may already be too old to really make it happen, and sorry not to go ageist, you know, on everybody, but, like, I'm, I'm 53. I think Same. that... Yeah, I could tell. Yeah. Um, so I really think it's important, you know, whatever age you are. I'm watching my niece, who's seven, is very knowledgeable about this and feels activated about it. And she feels empowered to say no straw. And she kind of knows these little, the course that we've chosen. We're getting Owen on the no straw movement. You are? Great. He's in. Well, anyway, so I mean, yeah. Sorry, I'm not exactly answering your question, but I do. No, I do think that we job. we you need a, a system. Job. We need a system shift, and it, just in even walking down the main street here today, this morning, coming to the campus, you know, there's a lot of room. There's a lot of room for change and for improvement, and it would be interesting to see people on the campus who are concerned about this gather all the stakeholders together and have some conversations and look at the contracts that the campus has and see if there are ways that you can ask the companies that you have contracts with, like PepsiCo, to um, only provide their beverages in glass or using soda fountains and things like that. It is totally possible to do that and also to require that they're responsible to take back 100% of their packaging. So. 
Um, I'm pretty full on about it, but I, I think that, you know, you could do it. You yeah. can make it happen. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much. Sure. Yes, thank you. Most of your presentation was focused on the post-production pollution yes. problem posed by plastics. Yeah. But I was particularly struck by the graphic at the beginning about the production phase and also the fact that most of it involves petrochemicals. So my question is, how significant is that a contribution to global warming and climate change, the production phase with petrochemicals? Yeah, it's, it is significant. Um, the Ellen MacArthur, Ellen MacArthur Foundation did a report that came out that they released at um, the Economic World Forum at Davos about a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, and in that report, they said at the current rate of production, by 2050, there will be more plastic in the ocean than fish by weight. Hmm. I think it's going to happen faster than that. Hmm. So there are many groups that are involved in the global movement to address plastic pollution who are really looking at the divest, divestment movement, how do we move away from our dependence on fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. This plastic is directly connected to climate change and global warming. Mm -hmm. It's all part of the same thing. When we talk about addressing plastic and the plastic industry, we're really also talking about the entire petrochemical industry and we're talking about the, a small handful of companies that control all the energy on the planet that we live mm -hmm. on. So it is very much important to look at it holistically, I think. Um, it also, plastic pollution is an issue that really dis disproportionately impacts people in lower income communities mm -hmm. because they don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's across the United States and around the world. And it was amazing mm -hmm. when we put this footage up mm -hmm. yesterday, how many people thought that that was footage from Southeast Asia because we've seen footage like that or footage like that from the Dominican Republic uh, or Indonesia, mm -hmm. um, but no. That's Los Angeles. So it's, it's mm. a gl we have a global crisis going on with this stuff. Mm. And it, tomorrow we can't just all wake up and be like, yeah, business mm. as usual. I'm going to mm. pick up my plastic to-go cup on my way to mm. work. You know, no. Mm. Bring, a, bring a ceramic mug with, from, from home with you, mm. you know. <laughs> Invest in mm. something that's a to-go mm. object mm. and use it thousands of times. Mm and just become part of the solution. Stop mm -hmm. contributing to the problem. And I know I've talked to people who say, well, oh, what's one person gonna do by mm -hmm. refusing plastic straws every time I order a drink? Well, you know, people say, well, mm -hmm. what, what effect can I as one person have said 7.4 you know, billion people? It's like, mm -hmm. if you've got a lot of people and everybody mm -hmm. does something and we all move in a particular direction, mm -hmm. then we create change, so. Mm -hmm. Brief follow-up, do any of the alternative modes of production which you outlined for plastic production, are they making any dent or headway? And then I'll sit down, thank you. Um, what do you mean the alternative modes? Uh, you talked about various materials that mm -hmm. can be used in place, in place of, of? Mm -hmm. chemicals, uh, various organic materials. Mm -hmm. um, people are all around us are trying to scale them up. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm interested to see what happens with this company, mm -hmm. Lollyware, that's doing mm -hmm. the, the seaweed-based edible mm -hmm. cups and straws, mm -hmm. only because if that can get into something with, I don't know, Capri Sun or mass-marketed, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. big corporate 
company so that it replaces all of this other <laughs> single-use plastic stuff, then I think that's a great place to start. I mean, it's still a single-use. I'm not mm -hmm. that big of a fan of single-use, I have okay. to be honest. Yeah. Okay. But I'm the child of someone who was born in 1930, so I think my dad's like a depression baby, and he's really used to using real things and saving everything, and I love that. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Ooh, you have a glass straws t-shirt on. <laughs> yeah, I do. And it's made from plastic bottles oh, wow. actually in Haiti. So um, first off, I just want to say thank you so much for coming tonight. Like oh, I've been following you for so long. It, I feel like I was very blessed to have you here tonight. Um, I actually, over the past month, just opened up a zero waste shop. Here? Yeah. Um, yeah, actually. <laughs> it's called Trash Me Not. So we're still looking for our brick and mortar, but we're doing pop-ups between like here, Salem, Portland, Bend, you know. Trash me not. Yeah. And so we're specifically in the Pacific Northwest, and we focus on Pacific Northwest talent. So. Wow. Um, but anyways, uh, what I actually wanted to ask you was, I'm from Nashville. Oh, so yeah. So when you mentioned Bonnaroo, yeah. um, one of the things I kind of dream of is bringing my business back home. Um, out here, I feel like people are very ready for this change because guess what? We live right next to the ocean, so it's very important to us. But how have you, in your travels, um, dealt with the, um, the people who live inland and the fact that they don't really relate to the ocean very much because, the truth be known, they probably have only seen it maybe once, maybe once a year if they were lucky, mm -hmm. but maybe once ever. Mm -hmm. um, I really think that the way that this, the, these, the chemicals that are used to make plastic as we know it, and the way that they impact human health, I think it's key. Okay. And I think that you'll meet people who don't care about the ocean, and that's fine, um, but they may have had someone in their family or dear to them in their life who suffered from obesity or diabetes or cancer, um, and the fact that these chemicals feed or contribute to those illnesses um, might resonate more with them than, you know, the oceans becoming polluted. So I think that that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is by providing people with things that they can reuse or refill, people save money and they create less waste. Mm -hmm. And I think that those are both very appealing to me. Okay. So I would imagine that they might appeal to other people when it comes to saving money. Well, I'll work hard on trying to drive that home when I fly back. <laughs> yeah, and so. I don't know if you've joined our coalition, but please do. I just did. I yeah. didn't realize you had a, a separate part. I had joined a while back just yeah. as a person. <laughs> but I just realized that groups could join, like or, uh, businesses. So I did yeah. while I was here. So thank you very yeah. much. It's thank free you. to join. I'm just hoping everyone in the world joins. So yes. you're all welcome. Thanks so yeah. much. I think you're awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Good evening. Good evening. Um, well, I first I want to voice deep appreciation that for the work you're doing and contributing to raise awareness and may you be heard and heard widely. Um, I wanted my questions uh, about the art, and um, I love the pieces you've shown, um, and I think many of them convey really contribute to conveying uh, your message. But at least some of them also um, possibly aestheticize plastic as a medium. 
And in so doing, they endow it with an aura as a, as a material. Mm. And might that not potentially work against, um, against your, your own message? And how would you address that paradox? That's an excellent question. <laughs> so I, I would say for myself with my own artwork, that's why I mentioned at times I try to make things that are ugly because I feel like I've been celebrating the material for a long time and I have a personal problem with that. So I'm a little torn. I think at this point it's safe to say I have like a love-hate relationship with my material. Um, that said, I do like that I'm able to use the work to help talk about or amplify talking about the issue. And I'm not anti-plastic per se. I think it's an amazing material. I think it's a remarkable material that has allowed a lot of tremendous uh, innovation and technology. Um, my problem with it is that when we design things with intended obsolescence, I feel that it's an irresponsible use of a valuable material. So that's my problem with it. I think it's complex, you know. Yes, it is. Yeah, but thank you for raising that. Yes, I struggle with that, personally. And not so much with some of the other artists. I think that their work is more uh, direct, directly speaking to uh, a negative with it. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a conundrum. It's a challenge for me. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, so my question for you is, do you think that more media coverage on, on a plastic solution would end the plastic problem, and why? Um, I'm actually noticing a lot more media about it recently. I don't know if you guys have, but um, David At Sir David Attenborough narrated this multi-series, multi-part series called Blue Planet in Great Britain, and it seems to have actually really impacted people there, and they're calling it the Blue Planet Effect. Uh, in that a, n a number of different companies have made all of these commitments to change and reduce their plastic footprints. So, yeah, I think it's important for more information to get out into the media, but the correct information, not greenwashing things by saying, if you buy these products that are made out of downcycled or recycled plastic for, you know, if you buy this fancy pair of jeans or these tennis shoes, that you've somehow contributed to solving the problem. I, I think that that's just greenwashing. So I think that the media attention needs to be with correct messaging. Um, but where I'm noticing a lot more of it recently, and again, people using art as a kind of call to action or doing site-specific engagements or even flash mob pieces. Uh, but I think you know there's room for a lot more. There's room to to raise awareness and educate people much, much, much more than, than has been done so far. Uh, only because, you know, I meet people every day who have never thought of this yet. So. Thank you. Sure, thanks. Yeah, a couple of comments. First of all, we have some of the cleanest water in the world here in Eugene. You do? So if people are drinking yes. bottled water, no. You know, and the other thing is when you go to the grocery store and they offer you free samples, Refuse them. Ask them, say, are these recyclable plastic? Say, no, I'm not taking it. They'll get the message. But what I wanted to ask about is the medical field. They have so much plastic, one-use plastic, and they all used to use those. I forgot what they're called, but they'd put them in these big steamers, you know. Uh, 
autoclave. Yeah, and I wonder if there's some way we can get the medical field because they're, I don't, how much do they contribute? Do you know by a percentage? I don't know what the percentage is, but I have many, many times had uh, nurses or retired nurses or retired medical professionals ask that basically that question, what are we gonna do about all the plastic that's medical waste? Um, I don't have an answer for that yet. I've been somewhat wary of going going after something that could be used to save someone's life. Um, I feel like saving someone's life outweighs the fact that they may be getting dosed with endocrine disruptors while you're doing it. There is a really wonderful book that was written by Kathy Gerwig. She's the head of sustainability for Kaiser Permanente um, that's called The Greening of Healthcare. And one of the first things she did when she came to work at Kaiser in the neonatal ward was get rid of the heavily phthalated tubing that was being stuck into all the, you know, preemie babies uh, and swap it for something that was less toxic. Yeah, they also incinerated, and that's a big problem as well. And yes, it is. Thank you for those comments. Uh, hello. Hi. Hello. You can okay. point it down a little towards yourself if you want to. There you go. Okay. Um, so I can only say this because my other roommate left, but one of my roommates basically consistently drinks wa bottled water, like from a one of your roommates or one all of, of my your roommates, roommates. Mm -hmm. and I've kind of talked to him about it because. Mm -hmm. It takes up a lot of room in the trash, and frankly, he's not the one taking out the trash. But, uh, so what advice would you give for us to go out and talk to other people about plastic Is your roommate use? male? Yes. Well, you might want to let him know that the chemicals that are used to make the plastic bottles he's drinking out of have been linked to lower sexual function, sterility, and infertility. Thank you. I mean, that's a good place to uh -huh. start. <laughs> Try that. Clearly, there's a need for nationwide packaging reform. Oh, yeah. Have you heard of any kind of legislation or real movements to get sweeping across the country packaging reform? In Europe, yes. No, I in mean In India, here. yes. Um, well, in California, we just passed four pieces of legislation, and one is related to to-go food packaging for the state. So hopefully that will set some standards that will help contribute to at least phasing out polystyrene to-go containers in California. Um, I have not heard of anything nationally, but you know, in California it took us eight years or something to ban plastic bags at markets because there was so much pushback um, from the plastic industry. But there's also a problem with ALEC laws, which are laws that preemptively ban bans that have been passed in a number of states in the United States. So there's a lot of stuff to uh, navigate there. But with the plastic bag ban in California, one of the things that I think really pushed it over the edge was towns, cities and towns just systematically kept banning them. So at some point we had like 114 cities that had banned plastic bags and it just was enough to kind of topple it. And I, th I think that could be a strategy that could be used just, just to, to focus on it at a local level or a city level or a state level and then see if we can take something nationally. But 
I am not aware of it at this time. Okay, well, thank you for the so answer. Sorry, that's not a happy answer, but. Not a happy topic. Yeah, it's not, yeah. So regarding our wardrobes. Yes. As I try to replace synthetics with natural fiber. Me too. If I give them to St. Vincent, then mm -hmm. someone else will just be washing them. True. Is it better to just give them to the landfill? I don't have an answer for you. Yeah. Yeah. I know that when I um, decided to get rid of some very much loved Tupperware that I had um, and just phase out a bunch of plastic storage containers and things like that I was using in my kitchen, I gave, I put them all in a box and gave them to uh, like a Goodwill. Mm -hmm. I think it, in, in retrospect, what I should have probably done is um, used it for sundry things that were not food related, mm -hmm. like in the garage or for my art supplies, just yeah. to store other rather things. Than rather, else yeah, rather than put them out where someone yeah. else is gonna use them. Yeah. I don't have an answer for you yeah. about clothing. It's a real problem. Mm -hmm. There are a couple companies that I know of, I, I don't remember the names off the top of my head, that are making these additional filters that you can add between your washer mm -hmm. and where you hook it up to the pipe mm -hmm. that do help remove yeah. the microfibers that are released. Mm -hmm. but. You know, there are people all over the world who don't even have washing machines or dryers, and yeah. so it's, it's a really big problem, yeah. Glass, aluminum, and tin are relatively uniform products. When you recycle them, they can all go together. Plastic, of course, we have numbers one through seven, plus many other plastics that don't fit in any of those categories. Mm -hmm. So I wonder how much effort is being made to reduce the various chemical compositions of plastic so more can all be put together in one recyclable unit. So sorry to be totally Debbie Downer right now, um, but because China uh, put this kind of curtain down that they're not uh, accepting our recycling anymore, um, there's, a, there's a, a woman named Jan Dell whose background is in industry, working with a bunch of these different corporations that we've been talking about. And she um, took the current recycling rates and created projected recycling rates based on China no longer taking our recycling. Um, and prior to this report, which we just released about two weeks ago, um, our recycling rates for all plastic across the board are less than 9% in the United States. Her projections by the end of 2018 are that that number will drop to 4.4%. Um, and by 2000, so to, to the end of 2018, and by 2019, potentially to 2.8%. So recycling is not really working right now. I don't want to dissuade anyone from putting stuff in the recycling bin. I put things in my recycling bin and cross my fingers and say a blessing that the stuff goes somewhere and something happens to it. But um, I mean, it's a real bummer. Plastic is not valued as a, um, as a, it's not 
considered a valuable material and it's considered an inexpensive or cheap material when the truth is that all of the costs to human health and animal health and the environment and the ocean and our waterways and our air, et cetera, our food chain and our food sources have been externalized. Uh, and so I actually think that if we really looked at it and calculated it with all of those things, we would find it's quite an expensive cost prohibitive material to use the way that we're using it for single use packaging. So I, I really think we need a major system shift. I'm not sure exactly what that's gonna look like. I'm open to ideas. So first of all, I want to say thank you for um, creating Plastic Pollution Coalition. Oh, my pleasure. Because it it um, something that I really care about, and having the materials that your organization puts out helps me talk to other people about it. Cool. And that that really helps me. That you bring all the information to us. We share those videos. We share those pictures. We share that art, and it and it inspires other people to think about those issues. So. Thank you Thank for you. doing that. Um, the other beautiful thing is that you, you came to doing that through your art, which is amazing. I'm, I'm an activist, but I'm now just exploring art as a way to sort of cope with the, this huge problem, like how much of a heartbreak it is. And I had my first art show a couple weeks ago, oh. and a lot of my art focuses around this problem, and, and it gave me this great platform to talk to people about what's in my heart about the planet. And lots of other people said, yeah, me too. I'm really burdened by this. And so it's just beautiful that you get to follow your heart's desire in making art. And then it's also this tremendous platform to share with other people, you know, how you care about yeah. the world. So thank you for that. So I, my question for you, you might've heard of this, you know, Trader Joe's is a, is a store that we kind of love and hate at the same time. And Everybody knows Trader Joe's has lots of packaging, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that we hate about it the most. You might have heard about this group in Europe where they went in, they got a bunch of friends together and they went into the supermarket and they unwrapped all their food and mm -hmm. they put it all in the cart and they left it there, yeah. you know, as a statement, right? Which I thought it initially was really cool because it, it's this illustration of the packaging problem. But then you also have the workers there who are left to kind of deal with the deal with that problem of, of the packaging. And so I'm just wondering, what do you, what kinds of interesting things have you heard of that people are doing to make a statement like that about the, the problems? Because we all maybe boycott Trader Joe's or we boycott this or that, but unless we talk to people and tell them why we're doing it, unless we tell this organization, I'm not gonna you know, shop at your business as long as you're doing this, they don't know, you know, other people will come in and buy stuff there. They mm -hmm. don't know that we're not spending our money there because that doesn't align with our values. Right. Um, so, I mean, what, what do I do personally? I used to spend a lot of money at Trader Joe's because <laughs> we have a bunch of boys in our family and they eat a lot. Yeah. Um, but I started to realize that I couldn't, but I also felt like I couldn't even buy a lot of things at the health food market yeah. either because everything was packaged in plastic there too. So. One of the things I do do is I add a little extra time when I go to the market and I go and say something to the manager like literally every time I go. Mm -hmm. And they say, oh, you know, do you need help finding anything? How's it? I said, yeah, well, I have a problem because everything here is packaged in plastic. So I would have bought more, but I'm only buying like these bananas and this thing and that thing because they're not packaged in a bunch of plastic and these things came in glass. Mm -hmm. So I do that pretty regularly. Um, 
I like the flash mobs people have been doing from Europe and Belgium and in France, mm -hmm. in Germany, going in and unwrapping everything. Um, I do that when I go to electronics stores. I hate all the clamshell stuff, and I also feel like I've cut myself on it before. There was a really funny Larry David Curb Your Enthusiasm uh, episode from a long time ago where he, the whole episode, he's trying to open some clamshell container. Um, you know, that show has too much schadenfreude for me, but, uh, but th I thought that was funny about the clamshells. And apparently they get a lot of emergency room visits from people who cut themselves on clamshell containers too. So when I buy electronics, oftentimes I just ask them if they'll cut it out for me and tell them I just don't want the packaging. <laughs> um, those are just kind of personal things <laughs> that I think you could do. Uh, but I think that it, you know, if, if 10 or 20 people who all live in the same area or neighborhood all start going to their local market or shops and saying the same things to them, saying, wow, I'd like to buy more from you, but I have a problem with all this packaging. Is there anything you could do about it? Or do you think you could get some of this product? I'd like to buy it, and it's packaged in a different way, or it's unpackaged. And then I don't know if the woman's still here who opened the refill shop, is she? What did she say her shop was called? Trash, Trash, Trash me not. Yeah. So you've got someone here locally who's doing pop-up shops. So maybe look up Trash Me Not and see if she's got products that you know you'd like to help buy or support or would use. Because yeah. I really like the idea of being able to refill things like shampoo Absolutely. or or household products. Um, and particularly non-toxic ones. And then there's really fun stuff on our website and a lot of the other coalition members about how to make your own toothpaste, you know, how to make your own um, deodorant and different, different things, kind of a lot of DIY stuff, do it yourself. So mm -hmm. I guess on a personal level, those are the kind of things I would encourage, yeah. but I think it's great that you're making art. Yeah. And if that helps you express it or communicate it, then that's part of the great power of art. It is. Yeah. I wanted to say one other thing, the question about healthcare. Um, I happen to work for Kaiser Permanente, and I know Kathy, and she's amazing, but there's a conference that happens every year. It's called Clean Med, yeah. and um, it's a place where people who care about this issue come to talk all about the strides that healthcare organizations are making to decrease their carbon footprint mm -hmm. and reduce the amount of plastic waste that we generate. There are two fantastic organizations. One is called Practice Green Health, mm -hmm. and the other one is called Healthcare Without, Without Harm, mm -hmm. that are doing amazing work in the healthcare sector, so if that's something you care about, you can look those up. There's also up. a company that's part of our coalition called Made Safe. It was founded by Amy Ziff, and we created a healthy baby guide with her, but it's really a plastic-free baby guide, and it's just free. You can download it from our site. Okay. So those are all great resources. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Um, this morning I was uh, over at the uh, Slocum Orthopedic Center having about 20 staples removed from my thigh. Wow. And they were titanium, and I assumed that they were going to be recycled. Wrong. They don't want to deal with the liability. They don't want to autoclave them. They don't want to let me touch them. They're going to get thrown in with all the plastic waste and incinerated. So mm. titanium is worth money, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Aluminum is easily recycled. Mm -hmm. Recycling takes a fraction, a tiny fraction of what it costs to smelt bauxite, to reduce it from this most abundant natural material. Did you ask if you could keep all those staples? Oh, yeah, yeah, they said forget about it. Oh, okay. So the point is, I'm trying to get to, is that the ugly 
intersection of politics and money mm. has basically screwed us all mm -hmm. because they're not insisting that we come up with light, recyclable metal containers, which we can use, reuse, resmelt, mm -hmm. repackage endlessly in, ad infinitum. You know, I mean, if somebody's wearing a piece of gold jewelry here, it could be a piece of gold jewelry that somehow is derived from a piece of gold that was picked up thousands of years ago mm -hmm. off the coast of Scotland or Ireland. Mm -hmm. Possibly, not likely, but anyway. So the whole point is that politics and money have dictated that trashing the planet is a lot easier than paying for metal recycling materials, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, I was shocked this morning. I, I just couldn't believe it. They wouldn't consider the titanium worth messing with. I mean, it's less than an ounce, right? right? But if you multiply that by the millions of people who have surgical you know, procedures and mm -hmm. have uh, titanium staples removed from their bodies, that's a big industry. Well, I don't know if you have extra time on your hands, but you could always start some kind of movement to collect titanium bits and pieces. There are people who, who filter dentists' uh, drains uh -huh. to filter out the heavy metals. And, and it's billions of dollars every year, mm -hmm. the gold and the silver and the mercury. I've never heard this about titanium, but it sounds really cool. I'm going to think about it now. <laughs> Well, I mean, people make jewelry out of it, too, of course. Right, but I'm just wondering, you know, what you could do since you've had this experience. I mean, could you write a letter to somebody and say, what are we doing about this? Did you... We could have walls of supermarkets lined up with empty containers of various sizes and, and uh, tops, you know, flip-tops, screw-tops, mm -hmm. and all kinds of bulk containers for all kinds of foods. So there are refill shops that do have that, and the health food market that I go to in Hollywood does ha sell glass jam jars if you didn't bring your own. So you can do that. It is possible to do, or you can bring your own if you thought about it in advance right. before you go. And we could just simply make uh, soft drinks, you know, in plastic illegal. Well, I think it would be... I, I don't Energy drinks. Yeah, I don't drink soft drinks, but I think, you know... It would be great if they were back in glass. It would be great if glass was actually valued and collected and sterilized and refilled. It's but expensive, and the consumers well, don't want to pay. It's for expensive it. now, but we used to have that system when I was a kid. So oh, clearly, absolutely. it worked. And at the some milkman point. would leave milk jugs on the doorstep, mm -hmm. right? Milk mm -hmm. on my doorstep. Absolutely. Loved it. Right. Well, People are bringing that back, though. My sister has a service that brings milk. But writ large, yeah. you know, with the urbanization of a planet. Mm -hmm. It's a po political and economic solution, and it's so huge, and it's so, it's, it's like this, this, this Ebola of the spirit. I agree. Has, has gripped the human <laughs> condition. Yeah. And rendered us all basically, uh, you're talking about plastic in men's, you know, virility. Right. There was a piece um, that was based on some research that came out recently. It was about two or three weeks ago in GQ magazine. And the title of the article is Sperm Count Zero. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. So we've all been neutered for convenience. And, and there's, the great thing that you're doing is you're raising the questions. Let's stick with the questions. Yes. Thank you for your Thank time. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Uh, my name's Ron. I'm, I'm a... Oh, a local um, plaster recycler. Went through the program in um, the early 80s, 
90s. I mean, well, since I've been in Eugene. Yeah, there are other master recyclers. Well, the thing is, um, when we first started our master recycling, we did not have what's the thing called commingle. I'm sure you're aware if you're, are, do they have commingle where you live? Commingle, commingle recycling, where uh -huh. you throw it all in one batch? Right. Okay, what we've given up is the uh, will to actually take uh, ownership of our plastic. Mm -hmm. Okay, before it used to be we could recycle all this plastic in local markets, mm -hmm. okay? If we took good care of it and cleaned it out, the problem mm -hmm. now is be to throw it in a bin, then they won't take it because it's contaminated. So mm -hmm. a good example is if you use it for food or has any kind of contamination, that's the thing that makes it not usable. So like when China, that's why China won't take it, is because mm -hmm. it's contaminated. Well, they're all also now their population's big enough, they're right. creating And they're making their, their own, own plastic, yeah. which is not much better. But anyway, the point was, mm -hmm. like right now there's an initiative uh, by the local um, uh, recycling community here to uh, reclaim plastic that has been disavowed through our commingle, uh, two, four, and five. Mm -hmm. Okay, five is polypropylene, it's very stable. Mm -hmm. um, you can heat it, mm -hmm. you know, like a wave, you can freeze it. I mean, as far as I know, it doesn't break down. Um, when you, I mean, I, I'm going to have to look it up a little closer, but I think it's the safest one. The problem is we have all these others. Now, for instance, water bottles. I know. Okay, they take water bottles back for um, reclamation. I mean, in other words, they give you money back for mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Okay, and they have places. But the problem is I was looking at that uh, picture in L.A. Mm -hmm. I'd say half the stuff in there probably had some value if you wanted to take it to a, to a recycling center where they give you money for it. But mm -hmm. it's just people are lazy. Mm -hmm. That's what it basically is. I mean, I worked, I worked at an event mm -hmm. in 2008 when they had the Olympic trial here. We wanted to make it all compostable. Mm -hmm. So with biologicals and all the other things, 90% of everything that went in or came out of that event was compostable. Mm -hmm. And it was an effort. We did it. 90%. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, we don't have control of it because it's not local anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's my problem. So mm -hmm. when you talk about things global, but we have to have local control of it. So we need to take back our own local control of our plastics and our, our compostables and our and our waste, our food mm -hmm. waste. I so, agree. And that's the one thing we can do because then uh, we'll not be part of the ongoing problem. Right. I don't know if you see what I'm saying? So I agree with you. The only thing I would add to what you're saying or kind of have a slightly different opinion about is that I don't feel that it's because people are lazy. Okay. I think that we don't value plastic and we don't even see it anymore. So you can walk down the street and see, like I did today, smashed Starbucks cup in the bushes here and the, you know, the straw there and the top of something there and a bag tangled up in this. And we, it's almost like we don't see it anymore huh. because it's so ubiquitous and it is so well, around That's what us. I mean by if you can throw it in a, a can somewhere and somebody else will take care of it. That's why they don't think of it well, personally. Well, I mean, I actually think there are two things going on there. I think Starbucks likes to brand all their products. So it's very easily identifiable that this trash is Starbucks trash. Yeah. And again, I don't think that it is the public's fault. I think that about 50 years ago, a very specific strategy and concerted effort was put in place by front groups for industry, like Keep America Beautiful, um, Keep Blank Beautiful, mm -hmm. to put 
shift the responsibility and the onus for pollution onto the public. And I am pretty angry about it and irritated about it. And I didn't see that until recently. So, and even remember that commercial, that commercial when I was a kid, what year did it come out, 72 or 78 with the Indian crying? Right. I mean, that was part of a strategy that was created by industry to shift the responsibility and the messaging onto the public. And that's when we started getting the messaging, give a hoot, don't pollute, put it in the bin, don't be a litter bug. You know what? Starbucks is responsible for that garbage. Yeah, you're, not, you're not responsible for it. I'm not responsible no. for it. And they either need to really put things in place so that if people come into their establishments, they make it clear that they're going to give you a discount if you come in with your own reusable cup. Right. And they say, is this for here or to go to you? And they offer you a ceramic or a glass cup. And they start picking them up and washing them in the store. And I'd like to see Starbucks do that. And I will not patronize Starbucks if they don't do that. If I'm on the move and I have my own cup and that's my only option, I'll go get something and put it in this. But I will not buy any of the, and, and they're even worse in other parts of the world. Starbucks in, in Southeast Asia packages bananas in plastic. Oh. They wrap them in plastic in extra plastic bags. They put them in paper bags that have a plastic window. I mean, it's insane. So uh, what you're saying, I believe you're, what you're saying, Starbucks will not fill your cup if it doesn't stay Starbucks, right? No, If you they take will. a cup No, in, they'll fill it. Yeah. They will. But they have a rule, we were talking about it earlier today, that they measure everything by first making it in a plastic cup. So they, they are one of the most wasteful companies I've ever seen, and I think have gotten very far from whatever the original vision was mm -hmm. when the company was created. Yeah. Very, very far. I think it's embarrassing that their symbol is a mermaid. Well, I, I, I'm curious. Question. Oh, pardon? What is your question? My question is, well, I, I already asked her the question about what... We're just having a conversation. What, what we can do whether we can do it locally. You, so you're saying that some of it's not the responsibility of the user, but what I'm asking is uh, what, what is the, is the uh, obligation of the user? If, how, did that, how did those things get in the, uh, in the river or in how the canal? How did this whole thing happen? Yeah, how did all that like, stuff get How did get we there? wake up? How did I get here? I'm quoting well, the talking heads. Somebody, somebody was very, very casually, didn't throw it in the waste container, but on the ground. Or, maybe, or, or maybe it or blew out. Along the river and he, yeah. that's what I mean, I saw, I saw a couple garbage cans on campus yeah. today that were overflowing. They weren't being emptied. Right. So it could be that. Yeah. But I mean, the amount of waste. Yeah. So, you know, it's, 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 some of this is chicken and egg. I mean, I it's a bigger, that. it's a systemic issue. But well, it needs what you're doing, but well, it needs all this other stuff too. Like, like, for instance, okay, when I first moved out west, um, people who, I'm not, I'm not a smoker. People who smoked would open up their door and dump their, their cigarette butts out. Yeah. If I saw their window open even slightly, I'd dump it back in their car. <laughs> I mean, it's their butts. But so, by <laughs> the way, most people still don't. I used to smoke, I, and most people don't know that cigarette filters are made out of plastic. I know. I'm sorry. So, yeah, that's okay. Thank you. Okay. Hi, my name is Bernice Smyth. My question for you is, what is the next immediate move for either you and your team? Like, what's your next move goal? What are you guys working Thank on? Thank you for asking. Um, 
our next immediate move is tomorrow is an inter the International Day of Doing. And we're working with one of our coalition members called the Do School, which is based in Berlin. And there are over 50 different Do Day events that different groups have signed up to highlight something for a few hours tomorrow that they're doing. And we created the challenge with them and the challenge for tomorrow, October 18th is Do Day, is to refuse and reduce single-use plastic. So they're gonna be sharing a whole bunch of things. So that is our next immediate thing that we're involved in tomorrow. And anyone who wants to go check that out online, you could even sign up for it tonight or tomorrow morning if you wanna feature something that you're working on. Um, above and beyond that, we're in the process of preparing to launch uh, a beta site for a global plastic reduction toolkit. It's a legislative toolkit that we've been building for the last year. So I'm hoping that we'll have the beta version up by the end of November. And that will be something that people will sign up to utilize and engage. But it's kind of taking a step further what we get asked about a lot, which is, you know, how to start a bag ban in your town, how to start a polystyrene ban, you know, what kind of language did you use to um, change policy around different kinds of foodware or uh, uh, around straws. So the governor just signed into law uh, a bill that will, starting in January in California, be straws only upon request, which I think is gonna save a lot of straws and save uh, businesses a lot of money too. So that's the next big thing that we're working on. Thank you. Sure, thanks.